1: and build hope. How are you doing? Relaxed, you having a good summer? I'm okay, thank you for asking. Look, It has been a busy few years for us. We just wrapped probably our biggest investigation ever. We have yet to be sued. Thanks for asking, but uh, we we still could be. Last fall, we had our first hit podcast outside of Canada, Thunder Bay with Ryan McMahon. More than a million downloads around the world. We also had to kill a podcast that we loved. We loved making We have launched shows, we've rebranded shows. We had an exodus of staff that left us scrambling to keep going and forced us to deal with our shit. We launched a branded podcast division. We did a show for a medical app. Oh yeah, we were targeted by a low-grade Republican smear campaign. No big deal. And we have grown. Five years ago, Canada Land was me harassing friends and and colleagues and uh, an ex-girlfriend for interviews on a relatively unknown podcast. Now there are 10 of us full-time and an entire network of shows. We just moved into a bigger office because our last one, which consisted of eight IKEA desks smushed together into this long boardroom-like structure, that got a bit cramped. It's much nicer now. It's been a lot. All of this happening, by the way, at a time when podcasting itself popped it is now a frothy space. It is a darling industry. It's gotten hotter and hotter. You might call it a bubble. It's all of the words. Podcasting is speculative and silly and exciting and we are trying to make the most of this moment without getting suckered into some some greedy nonsense. I actually think about that a lot. The danger of getting distracted by shiny things and all of the noise in the industry and in the media. I think a lot about the danger of losing sight of why this Canada land thing exists in the first place, which is because of crowdfunding, because of our Patreon, because of you, some of you, this is a people powered company. And and that sounds like jargon as well. I recognize, but it is the literal truth. We don't exist without our supporters. None of this would have happened. None of this could be happening right now. And part of the deal that we have with you, that I have with you, is transparency and accountability. And it's mid-July, and we have a moment to catch our breath and reconnect and and honor that agreement. So today isn't Ask Me Anything. We have solicited questions from you. You have sent them. Today, I'm going to take questions from our audience, supporters and non-supporters, friends and otherwise, Questions about this show and about this company. Some of the questions that you're going to hear today will be asked by audience members themselves. uh, Those of you who asked questions and were okay with being recorded and heard on the show. Other questions were sent to us as written questions, and those will be read by our producer, Jordan Cornish. And just so you know, our producers, Kevin Sexton and Kasia Mihailovic and Jordan Cornish, they vetted these questions. They chose the ones that I'm going to be asked today. So I have no control over which questions I am about to be asked. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Sarah Wolfe, Cameron French, Mary Ingram, Ed Michael Roth, Amber Otier, James Cohen, and Malcolm Fraser.
0: Hi, my name is Malcolm. I'm a writer and musical entertainer in Montreal, and I support Canada Land because the Canadian media establishment totally deserves to be criticized and made fun of. And uh, we might take that for granted today, but uh, it wasn't always so. Somebody needs to do it. So I'm happy that these guys do.
1: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there. A lot of mattress liars. all of these questions, I have been. I've read some of them when they came in because some of them were sent to my email address, and I formulated in my head what my response would be. But we just recorded a shortcuts, and I've forgotten all of the questions, and I have no idea, as I mentioned, which ones you're gonna. I feel a little bit vulnerable. I feel a little bit. Uh, I I don't necessarily like being on this side of things.
2: Well, good. That's kind of the point. All right, what do you got? Here's one question from Matthew Johannes. Hey, Jesse. Just curious why Canaland hasn't given much time exploring the changes in Canadian sports media over the last two to three years. The entry of major international players like DAZN and MediaPro has seemingly stepped on both TSN and Sportsnet in a big way. And many Canadian newspapers are dropping sports reporters. Surprise, this topic hasn't really come up on the show.
1: Oh, that's an easy one. I'm a sports illiterate. I don't even know those words that you just said or those things that they exist as news to me. We're at a stage now where like my personal blind spot should not necessarily mean that Canada land has an institutional blind spot. So we have done an episode on sports media in the past, which I found really interesting to get learned on some stuff. But... I mean, Jordan, you've brought up that we should be doing that, and Jaron has brought up that we should be doing that, and we get frequent requests to look at it. There's all kinds of problems in sports media. And so basically to the freelancers out there, if you've got like a sports media criticism story or scoop, we're very receptive to those stories. In terms of doing it on the podcast, it's probably going to be like when we have guest hosts. There's only so many times that I could play the like, I'm dumb, consider me a five-year-old and teach me everything. I'm happy to do that again. The will is there. The ability is what's lacking. Hey, Jesse. My name is Jeremy Appel. I'm a reporter and editorial writer at the Medicine Hat News. I was wondering if there are any issues you've changed your position on as a result of discussing it on the show. God, I hope so. It wouldn't be a sad statement if if there were not. I've changed my mind about freedom of speech. (laughs) Not totally. I used to be basically an absolutist. I used to feel like with the slimmest of exceptions, you can't, you know, say I'm going to kill this person or I'm going to kill this group of people and you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Outside of the most specific and explicit transgressions, I was basically like, no, we have to just let people say all kinds of things no matter what they are. And uh, even against hate speech laws, I I used to feel pretty strongly about that. I've changed my mind. I'm a little bit fuzzy still as to what it should be, but i do think that the internet has changed things and i think that it's one thing to have some idyllic libertarian exchange where yes there's people with terrible ideas and there's people who might even have hateful ideas but you can't legislate against emotions and the best thing is just let these ideas fight it out with each other but that does not anticipate a world where you're fighting with robots (laughs) that doesn't anticipate a world where you're fighting people who have total anonymity that does not i think accept Privilege. I used to think sticks and stones. If you don't like all the abuse coming at you, then get out of the discourse, you know, just like you don't have to care what's on the Internet. And I now accept that the Internet is such a part of life that if somebody is being harassed and doxed and sent threatening or, you know, it's so easy to, like, suggest threats without actually sending threats, you can legitimately make somebody's life unlivable just with words. And you can even skirt certain laws. And we have to figure out a way to deal with that. It's not good enough just to say like, hey, free speech, deal with it. So that's something I've changed my mind on. But I don't know exactly what I've changed it to. I don't know what we should do about all that.
2: Our next question comes from Ryan Belliqua. Why are you so soft on Paul Wells? Is it so he comes back? Having him on this show is like a golden opportunity to use the words implicit bias or nail him over climate inaction. And the questions are such softballs.
1: Thank you for your question, Ryan. I don't know what I would necessarily be hard on Paul Wells about. No, there's stuff, and I know Paul Wells has his critics, but this is actually a good opportunity for me to make a distinction that I feel like we don't make very well. If Paul Wells were to appear on a Monday Canada Land show where we do one big story or one big feature interview, then you could and should expect to hear me basically go through his entire career as a journalist and do accountability questioning as to why he does things this way or what his practice is like or why he mishandled this story and ask the questions that you want to hear him asked. But we've never had Paul Wells on for a Monday show like that. We've only had Paul Wells on for a Thursday show, which is Shortcuts. And Shortcuts is a show where we talk about what has happened in the news this week. It's a show where me and a co-host, not a guest, opine and comment on news, which is a very different thing than basically like a big feature story on Monday. But because both of those shows are called Canada Land and they come on the same RSS feed and people just like go and they tune into Canada Land if they want to listen to Canada Land or like the guest or something, I think that there's a lot of haziness and confusion or just people don't know that we make these two different types of shows. And so that's why. I would be happy to make things very difficult for Paul Wells. That might be fun.
0: Uh, Hi, my name is Stephen Riley. I'm a recent resident of Halifax, Nova Scotia.
2: My question for Jesse is, will he ever address on the podcast, Vicky Machama
0: and Jane Lynn criticism of Candleland's underpaying female and racialized staff?
1: I will. I spoke about this a little bit on the podcast, and we've addressed this as a company. And I'll get everybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about up to speed a little bit. Almost a year and a half ago, after a really rocky period where a lot of people left this company in a short period of time, we put out a transparency report And as we do, we divulged all the information about what people were getting paid and a number of former employees of Canada Land were openly and publicly critical of Canada Land for what they had learned because we had started paying people more money and they were looking at the makeup of who was working here and what everyone was getting and we faced a lot of criticism. So I I said at the time, everyone is obviously expecting us to be transparent about this and to answer these these questions, but give us some time because there's some validity to these criticisms and I don't want to just shoot back reflexively. And what we did then was we hired somebody to come into the company and start this very involved process. Obviously, my conception of how good I am as a manager and what it was like to work here was not compatible with reality, or at least with a a number of people's reality. And to figure out why that was, was something that was obviously in a blind spot for me. So I needed some help. So we hired somebody whose expertise is providing that kind of independent third party external criticism and and research into a company. And they came in and, and initiated a really involved process where employees had one on one interviews and they could speak to this person knowing that their criticism wasn't going to get back to me. And then we all had conversations as a group together. And, you know, I learned a lot about what was happening here. And the outcome of that was a report that detailed some of the things that we were getting wrong and a number of policies like an equity policy and diversity policy and policies about how we communicate in the office and policies about what people should be getting paid and how we hire people. And what we did was we released all that stuff, not just the policies, but the report itself, which which contains a fair amount of criticism of Canada and, and of me. And that's all online in our last transparency report. We released it all. So that's how we dealt with it as a company, but that's that's not what you asked. You asked if I will ever speak to the specific complaints of former employees Jane Litvinenko and Vicky Machama, and will I do so here on the podcast? And I haven't done that yet. So I'll do that, yes. And I know specifically which tweets you are asking me to respond to because you sent us links to them. So this is the tweet from our former editor, Jane Litvinenko, and this tweet came out on March 8th, 2018, which was International Women's Day. On this important day, I would just like to shout out my former employer, Jesse Brown, who gave a man 20000 more to do my job after I left. My response to that is just to tell you what, what happened. We're public with what everybody gets paid here in our transparency report. Jane was getting paid $35,000 a year. I uh, believe what she's referring to is the replacement of the post of editor of Canada Land, Jonathan Goldsby. Jonathan Goldsby got $50,000. So it's a $15,000 difference. And a large portion of that was a company-wide raise that went to every employee. It would have gone to Jane had she still been with the company. But that doesn't account for the full amount. And that was me matching his salary from Now Magazine. Jonathan had been working in journalism for seven years longer, and that's what I needed to pay to get him to come work here. Okay, so Vicky Machama's tweet. Vicky Machama, of course, used to write the hilarious Not Sorry newsletter here at Canada Land. She also co-authored the Canada Land Guide to Canada, and she also was a co-host of Canada Land Commons, and she went on to become a newspaper columnist and, and now is running Vocal Fry podcast studios. And after leaving the company on the same day, the 8th of March, 2018, she tweeted, Racialized people get paid less at Canada Land. Successive transparency reports confirm that. So when I first read that, I had a a very defensive feeling about it, that I was being accused of something really terrible here, and I had to very loudly shout out that this is not true. The idea that two employees, one is racialized and one is not, and, and I pay the racialized person less, it was the implication I took from that, and I wanted to shout, not true, not true. I was encouraged to take a breath and think about what Vicky was trying to tell me and trying to say and I'm glad that cooler heads prevailed. And I listened to that good advice because Vicky's tweet is correct. Like if you look at what we were paying people, no, we weren't paying people different rates based on their race. We were paying people different rates based on what they were doing here. And the people who were doing the more senior things here were white people. And it was a fact that the, the the white people here had the senior jobs that were compensated at a higher rate. And I was really forced to look at why that was and how that came to be. And you know, there's, there's lots of excuses. Like when we post an entry level position, we get a much more diverse field of applicants than when we say, you know, five years experience needed, must have management experience, or must have been, you know, running a show, because that is a process that reflects everything that is wrong everywhere. And there are less racialized people who have five years of experience running a radio show somewhere than there are white people. And do we want to just absorb those problems and recreate and perpetuate those problems? And we don't, but I didn't know how to do any better than that and I needed help. And there's a lot of thought that's gone into this. There's a lot of stuff out there that I was able to have an opportunity to listen to. And so this is what we do now. Like uh, it's a series of, of things when we have a position, we don't just post the position and say, okay, uh, the door is open. Everybody's welcome to apply. We seek out communities of racialized people, of marginalized people. We let people know, hey, we're coming to you if we're allowed to post here. We want you to know that we are welcoming of applications from people from this group. We, we want you to apply. You're encouraged to apply. And then we looked at things like, okay, five years experience needed or must have on-air experience, things like that, because that selects on racial lines. And we had conversations here about like, okay, are there other kinds of experience people have that might be applicable that's not necessarily like I was running a show for 5 years. So we invite people if you think you have experience in other parts of life that might that might make you experienced and qualified for this job, please tell us what they are, you know. Let's have a more open attitude to what makes somebody qualified. And let's also ask internally, are we creating an environment where when we bring in people at an entry level, can they rise within the organization? Do they get the mentorship and the training and the support that they need so that they can grow into those senior roles and get compensated accordingly? And my feeling, and I think it's demonstrable in the most recent uh, transparency report, is that that stuff is working and that's happening within the company and we still got a ways to go with it. But I think I can only be grateful to Vicky for pointing that out. I think that, that, that did us a lot of good and I don't know, I wish it didn't take being called out publicly to check our bullshit, but that's sort of consistent with the whole idea of Canada land is that that's needed and necessary and that you need uh, somebody independent and external to tell you the truth, you know, even if it means throwing stones. So I want to thank Vicky for that tweet. It was a true tweet.
0: Hi, my name is Brendan. Uh, I'm a journalist in Alberta and Saskatchewan. I'm asking if you think someone's Twitter game or presence on Twitter is an indicator of being a good journalist.
1: Not necessarily, but Twitter is beautiful for journalists. I, I hate the Twitter bashing. Twitter is an essential tool for my practice as a journalist. The ability to ask people questions in public is amazing. Like, it's like you can scrum anyone. You don't have to be on Parliament Hill. You don't have to be at the press conference. And... It really is kind of a meritocracy where it's like if you can dig up something that nobody else has dug up and put a question to somebody that nobody else has, it doesn't matter if you've got five followers. Like now it's on the record. Now they've got a like a choice. They can ignore it. They can try to deflect it. They can answer it. So I I love Twitter just for that. But is it an essential tool for journalists? No, there's journalists out there who, you know, shun Twitter and can have great careers as a journalist. But why not use it? It's good.
2: Hi, I'm Michelle from Toronto. My question for you is what you and Ryan McMahon think about the Globe and Mail coverage of Thunder Bay. I know you spoke about this in a previous episode a bit, but curious about what you think of their accuracy and balance in their stories compared to your investigation. And also, can we expect any follow-up on Thunder Bay from Canada Land?
1: Second question, first, yes, you you can expect follow-up from Canada Land on Thunder Bay. What do I think of the Globe's coverage? Pretty much what I've said. I feel like it's great that the Globe and Mail has committed itself to Thunder Bay. I think that why just a year? And then I have criticisms of the actual execution. I feel like as we have seen it thus far, it has been parachute journalism. It is very much we're looking at you and we're talking about you to other people. You can't even get the Globe and Mail in Thunder Bay. Some of the stories I think have merits to them and they've they've uncovered a couple of things and there's some original reporting. The lack of one Indigenous voice in their Thunder Bay Bureau thus far is an issue. I don't know. I I just question, like, you know, if you're going to do like a big feature on the band council elections at Fort William First Nation and then not cover the outcome. It's just so clear. You're not doing journalism for that community. So I'm not going to do like a word better than you. Like there's criticisms that people could have of our podcast. But one thing we tried to do was do it differently and really try to reimagine what the relationships are of who's doing the asking and who's holding the camera or the microphone and who's talking I'd just like to see more of that kind of journalism, and I hope to do more of that kind of journalism.
2: This is Michelle again, and this is my second question for Canada Land. Curious if you have any plans for a series that will investigate sexual assault and abuse claims. I know you had crowdfunded for this last year, so is this something that we can expect?
1: I hope so. We didn't hit our goal of getting enough money to hire somebody to just do that work but we do have the money that we did get set aside for those kinds of investigations. And I think that those kinds of investigations are as valid as they were when Me Too first emerged. And, and I think that there's a lot that the public doesn't know about just how hard those stories are. I think the public still thinks that like somebody says something on Twitter about a guy and he's on a shit list and then his life is ruined that afternoon. If they only knew how difficult those stories are to investigate and report. And I think that, that a procedural podcast that actually gets into the mechanism of journalism when you're dealing with, with such sensitive material would be a fascinating podcast. I can't say that, yeah, it's it's happening and it'll be out in three months, but we thought a lot about that and I, I would like to. Certainly we will continue to investigate those leads and we I think we have a mandate to do so and we're doing so, but I share Michelle's thought about about a podcast about it.
0: I'm S.B. Smith from
2: Nanaimo, B.C. I recently came across the Where is the Disability Beat in Canada post on the Canada Land blog. And my question for you is this. What will you do to commit to increasing disability perspectives on Canada Land?
1: I feel like maybe it's worth reminding people the difference between us and other organizations. Like there's 10 of us. There's a, a news team of two editors. Everybody else is either making podcasts or administrative and selling ads and stuff like that and helping things just work every day. So a lot of the stuff that we kind of apply to other news organizations like, hey, Globe Mail, how come you don't have one Indigenous reporter? I think that that kind of commitment that we might ask of another organization, it's not really an apples to apples thing with us when we are a fraction of a fraction of the size. If that sounds like a cop out, and it might, I'll say this. Let's start with the criticism. The criticism was the media does not represent like pretty much anybody in Canada except for a certain class of privileged white people. And that remains true, I think, for most of the mainstream media. So moving from that criticism to actually having an audience, it just made sense to start to actually do the things that I was criticizing other people for not doing. I want to hear from marginalized voices and voices that we don't hear from elsewhere just because that's what we are, is like we're trying to fill in blind spots and gaps that other people are ignoring. But when you're only hiring 10 people total, I don't think it makes sense to like have like those kinds of formal goals, but I'm happy to be judged by how we're doing overall. And if in a year the asker of that question, S.B. Smith, looks at our coverage and sees that we've done nothing on disability issues or disability voices since we published that piece, they would be quite right to say that... You you know we're bullshit and, you know we made a lot of noise but didn't follow through but I'll, I'll take this opportunity just to let it be known like we very much rely on people coming to us and trusting us to be heard and to be paid to be heard we respond to the pitches that we get in so the door's open
2: Jesse hi coming to you from Leamington Ontario I am an aspiring journalist and my question for you is do you have any advice or tips that would benefit me in this field because everyone around me is telling me journalism is a dying field there's no money to be made i'm wasting my time i'm wasting my money on the education that i'm getting to study journalism and it's a little bit worrisome so i'm just wondering from the perspective of yourself being a journalist and seeing the industry change over time if you have any advice that you could share with me or just anything to make me feel like I'm not making a huge mistake here.
1: Okay. So there's a lot of non-specific, aspirational advice that journalism students and aspiring journalists get, you know, believe in yourself, you know, it's not dead yet. And, you know, facts still fucking matter. And then there's a lot of like, oh, you should just go hang yourself in the closet because journalism's dead and you've made a terrible life decision. On the rare occasion where my slice is uh, solicited, I try to give practical advice. I will be as specific and practical as I can because I actually think I have some good advice journalism's failure as an industry is your opportunity. If you are getting into the field, There is a lot of reason for hope and there is actually a method by which you can determine. I don't know for sure whether you're going to make it as a journalist or if there's going to be a journalism industry, but all I can advocate for is like this weird path that I've taken and that I'm shocked more people don't take. So here it is. Here is the Jesse Brown path to success as a journalist. Don't ask for permission. Don't wait for a job. There are no fucking jobs. Don't cover something that you think the industry wants you to cover or that you think you can get paid to cover. Start right now covering the thing that you want to cover. Do it anywhere you can do it on Twitter, on Instagram, do it on a blog, do it on a podcast, cover the thing that you think there's so many things that aren't being covered enough. So pick one that needs the coverage and be bold and announce yourself as like, I'm the person covering this thing. That nobody else is covering. I am now, and people say, like, "Oh, who, you're a self-selected expert in this." Yeah, that's right. I'm self. I'm, I'm the person. No one else is doing it, so I'm going to do it. And insert yourself in conversations at the highest level. Ask questions of the people at the very top. Ask the most uncomfortable questions. Don't worry about being blacklisted or being rude. We're supposed to be rude. Let it be known that you're doing this. Treat it like a job. If it's a podcast, it should come out at the same time every week. Give it away for free and do it on the reg. And if you can't make a good show, just get a show out. If you, if it's whatever, I don't care what your medium is publish, 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 do it for a year. You've already put 22 years into your education or whatever. What's one more year? Okay. Maybe you've got to do it on the side of, of, of working uh, at a restaurant. Maybe you're not making any money off of it whatsoever. Give it a year, treat it like a job. At the end of the year, the magic number you're going for is 10,000, an audience of 10,000 regular listeners, readers, viewers, whatever. If you can make that number in a year, which is like a reasonable goal to get up to 10,000, then that's when you turn crowdfunding on. Don't crowdfund a concept, crowdfund a product that you have been delivering for a year. Okay. Do it, prove that it's good. And then say to your audience, I can't do this for free forever. You're going to have to pay me to do it. Go to Patreon or wherever you prefer and ask people to give you a couple bucks a month. Five bucks a month seems to be the average. You're aiming for a ratio of 1 in 10. You've got 10,000 people in your audience. If 1,000 of them give you $5 a month, that's $5,000 a month. That's $60,000 a year. Congratulations, you're a professional journalist.
2: Hello, my name is David Gregorado, and I live in Tokyo, Japan. I wanted to ask
1: you, what is Canada Land's five-year plan as a company? What are your plans journalistically? Thank you very much. The five-year plan is basically this to keep doing what we're doing as well as we can and honor it and recognize how special it is that we have that mandate and, and to provide the best media criticism and media reporting and continue to fill in holes that are overlooked by the media. While I try to stay crispy and do things that I find interesting. So working with Ryan on Thunder Bay was not really part of our original mandate, but we went to Patreon and to the supporters and said, should we do this? And the answer was a resounding yes. And I, I got to give up my seat to guest hosts for a while and go do this project that we're all so proud of. There's a few other things we're working on right now that are like that. If we can in five years be paying people even better or in one year be paying people even better, like I think we're actually now paying people decently and I'd like there's no reason why we can't just keep going in that direction as the company does better. I don't want to just grow and grow and grow. I'm kind of happy with this company. I just want to kind of make it better and make the product better. That's, that's kind of the plan.
0: Hi there. This is Ian Weniger from Pender Island. Question for Jesse. Jesse, how much... The proceeds of sale of Bits are yours.
1: Oh, here we go. All right, look, I'm not going to assume that everybody even knows what we're talking about here. So I had a friend in high school. His name is Jacob, but we called him Ba, and he's a brilliant guy. I stayed in touch with him. We both like cartoons. I didn't have any talent and I went into journalism. He stayed in cartooning. And um, one of the times that I was laid off by the CBC, I was depressed and I went and I knocked on Ba's door because he had just started a cartoon studio, an animation studio. And I said, look, I'm, I just need to get out of the house. I will volunteer for you, okay? And that's how I found myself. Like a week earlier, I had been hosting a national CBC Radio 1 show. Now I was moving the lips around on a cartoon character. Like I was the least skilled person working for free at this animation studio. And I'm so glad that I got laid off and that I humbled myself and went and volunteered because if I hadn't done that, I would not have been at Boz studio when he had the idea for Bitstrips, which is an app that lets people make cartoons, whether or not they know how to draw. Of the five of us who went into business and co-founded BitStrips, I had the least involvement, both in terms of my contribution and the piece of the company that I owned. I did get a little bit involved. You know, the other guys actually knew how to do stuff like draw or develop code. But I would say, I don't like that, or that should be this color. I don't imagine that that was that valuable. But later on, when we made BitStrips for schools, we pivoted, as they say, and we had a, a version of it that was for schools. I was the liaison with teachers, and that was really rewarding. That's where I was most involved. But that's not what made the money. What made the money was ultimately Bitstrips became Bitmoji and Bitmoji got sold to Snapchat. And that was a really good thing for me. Not as good a thing as some people think. Some of the reporting had figures that were not accurate. I think a $100 million figure was thrown about. This is all public. It was a $65 million stock and shares. And I'm not telling you how much of that I got, but here's what I will tell you. I don't owe transparency in what we do at Canada Land 100%. Transparency as to my personal finances, okay, I'll, I'll tell you this. I need to work still. I don't have the option of just not working and retiring at age 42. I need this job. I'm not rich enough to stop working. But it was really helpful in that there was a time with Canada Land where, especially when we didn't have libel insurance, where if this imploded, I would be totally screwed. Like no one would hire me in in journalism after what I've done. And I had no other way to make a living. So it has been a really nice thing. And I'm I'm secretly grateful that it just like, it was a windfall that helped just make things more comfortable and relaxed, but didn't really do anything but good things for my work ethic and for this project here. So in as much as it relates to Canada Land, that is how much detail I'm gonna get into. And so I hope that satisfies your interest in my finances, Ian. Hi, my name is Harrison. I'm speaking to you from London in England in the United Kingdom. Canada Land's podcast content is an essential part of my weekly audio digest, but I'm still smarting from the demise of the imposter. A truly unique podcast that, for me, was a game changer in how Canadian arts and culture was presented to a mainstream audience that might otherwise have never known of it. My question is, why was it cancelled? I was under the impression that it was partly funded by Canada Land's Patreon income, and that therefore
0: it would have been safe. Please elaborate if you can, Jesse.
1: We stopped making the, the imposter because there were not enough people like you. I'm with you, Harrison. I loved that show. We all loved that show dearly here. And I agree. I think it was a slept on, underappreciated gem of a show. We just couldn't do anything with the numbers. We typically will have numbers that are in many, many multiples of the number of people who support Canada Land listen to Canada Land. And in this case, there were fewer people listening to The imposter than there are supporting Canada Land. So we found ourselves in a situation where That show was expensive to make because it was robust, because it was interesting, because it took a lot of time. And we played around with the idea of like, should we put less money into each episode of that show? Should we make a simpler show? And we didn't want to do that. Like why stop doing the thing that we loved about it? So we made the show less frequently in the hopes that that would somehow, really like there was a process of trying everything we possibly could to figure out some combination of factors that would make the imposter work. And we couldn't, Uh, which isn't to say that there isn't a way that maybe we just failed, you know? I do think there was a lesson there in the way that podcasts work uh, versus the way that broadcasting works. A Canadian arts show, I think, is too broad a category. I don't think there's an audience out there that's like, I'm interested in Canadian arts, and that's inclusive of comedy, painting, experimental performance art, and video games. I think that each of those things might be able to sustain its own podcast, but you put them all together and we had a lot of difficulty building an audience in terms of the idea that we had crowdfunded for the imposter when we canceled it, we sort of had a conversation with our supporters saying, like, if you are a Canada Land supporter because of the imposter, we have no immediate plans to replace it with a different arts and culture show. So we'll understand if you no longer support us. In those early years, as we're trying to find out, like, we wanted to do everything. Can we do this? Can we do that? And this this kind of arts coverage, at least our audience, we couldn't make it work. I don't know. I don't know. It bo- it bothers me still. And those episodes are excellent. And people should go back and listen to it. And Aaliyah is fantastic. She is an incredible... Talent and an artist. And I have no doubt at all that, like, years from now, I will both be like boasting that we had Aaliyah before she was huge. And I'll also be eating crow that, like, really, you had her and you let her slip through your fingers. Because I have no doubt that she's going to do incredible things with whatever she does next.
2: Our next question comes from at being Brad. Who gets to call Jesse out on his shit when necessary? And does anyone actually do it?
1: Does anyone have the slightest hesitation to, like, people enjoy calling me out? In a way, like, it's like a national pastime. Is there some idea here that I'm, like, unassailable or that people are intimidated or afraid of retribution? Like, Jonathan has his own way of calling me out on my shit. Like, he's got a killer sigh, groan, this this wounded kind of... Uh, it is a value of Canada land that people with any amount of power need to be challenged and called out on their shit. And it has created a work environment that is sometimes difficult for management. No one has the slightest compunction about criticizing management. And, uh, you know, that happens with some regularity and on the open internet every day. Hi, this is Daniel Silverthorne from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And my question is, if you could create another spinoff podcast for your network, one hosted by you, what would the subject matter be? Thanks. The show would be called America Land and it would be a application of media criticism to America's media from the outsider perspective of this Canadian. Hate it. Wow, you and Kasha have both just let it be known how terrible an idea this is. I think it's a good idea. I think it could break big in the states. You don't nobody, nobody because no Because there's
2: I, no shows covering the American media.
1: Obviously, people are afraid to call me on my bullshit here. <laughs> That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me about it at jesse at Show.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land and our website is at canadalandshow.com. This episode, of course, was produced by Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasha Mihailovich. Managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show. If you appreciate our journalism, if you like our other podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash Canada land. We rely on your support. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you.
0: Hold up. What was that?